Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Neil. Neil's, Neil's in the house. You can always tell when Neil's in the house. Um, it's so great to be back here. Um, it's been a while. Um, it's really nice for Sarah and I to be, to be back visiting, saying hello to everyone. Um, congratulations on finding a new pastor as well. That's super exciting. Um, I was really happy when I heard the news that um, everything had gone through, and I'm really, really looking forward to seeing um, what, what's his name, Peter? Swanee? Swanee? Isn't there like a musician called Swanee? Like Jimmy Barnes's younger brother or something? Swanee? Yeah. I'm assuming not the same Swanee. Um, that could be interesting if you, if you did get him though. I've met him. I did a couple of sound gigs for him back in the day. Um, but no, really, really excited to see what's, what's coming um, for Glenn Osmond when, when um, Swanee starts next year. So when Stefan contacted Sarah a few weeks ago and said, you know, we've got a couple of dates, can, can you guys help us out with some, with some speakers? Sarah mentioned it to me and I was like, yeah, super excited. I'm always happy to, to come and speak anywhere because I had this idea, like I've always wanted to preach on Esther, always wanted to preach on Esther and, and never really had the chance to preach on Esther. And so I thought, yes, awesome, I'm going to preach on Esther, I'm going to talk about how God uses, you know, the, the lowliest and most unlikeliest of people to do really wonderful things. And then Sarah said, you know, that's the second week of Advent, right? And I was like, oh, come on, kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit. And so um, I was talking to Pastor Jeremy at Gateway um, after that conversation, I was like, He'd just done like a really cracker of a sermon a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, you got any ideas for me? I've got to speak at Glen Osmond. It's Advent. You know, they've, they've just hired a new pastor. They're waiting for that to come. And so he really wasn't much help, if I'm honest, about what he gave me. Um, and so Sarah and I were talking in the car on the way home. And you know that old El Paso taco ad where the kid's like, why can't you do both? Um, she kind of raised that. She's like, why can't you talk about Esther and talk about Advent? Um, and the idea really intrigued me, um, and so I said, Just let that sit with me for a while, and, and so I did. So I let it sit with me and let it sit with me some more, and some ideas started to grow, and I thought, yeah, I reckon I can make this work. Not that I want to twist scripture or anything to make it fit what I want to talk about, but some stuff really came out, and I thought, no, th- th- there's actually talking to me here. And so then actually came time to try and write my sermon, and so about a week ago, I thought, yeah, okay, it's time to start putting some words down, and then work just got stupidly busy, um, like really, really busy, and I've had to put in all these extra hours in the last week or so, so I'm like, yep, Tuesday night, it's going to happen, going to sit down and write it, no, nah, had to work late, had to do some other stuff, then Wednesday night, yep, no, nah, it's going to happen, didn't happen, got to about five o'clock yesterday afternoon, and I'm like, I still haven't written this, <laughs> um, it's in my head, you know, it was all, it was all coming together in my head, and then... Midnight, our dog had to have surgery on Friday. He had a um, sarcoma on his leg, a cancerous sarcoma, had to have that removed. So that like kind of wiped out, you know, most of the weekend um, and half of our bank account. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, and so it got to nine o'clock last night before a word hit my laptop screen. And um, I don't know really 100% where it's going to go yet because I woke up this morning and changed the ending. Um, I woke up and went, nah, the ending needs to change. So I jumped in and, and, and rewrote the ending. But um, also I want to give you a warning that at our church at Gateway, it's really not uncommon for the sermons to go for like 45 minutes. Um, if Jeremy gets excited, we can get close to an hour. So um, I'm probably not going to go that long today, but um, this is going to be a, 
it, you never know. It is going to be a bit longer than what I normally um, share for. I, I used to have this rule of I only think I've got the skills to hold the attention of people for about 15 minutes. Um, so, so that was generally kind of how long I used to try and keep my messages to. Maybe 20 if I got excited and, you know, could, could stretch things a little bit. This one is going to be a little bit longer. But I did find some of the stuff I'm going to talk about a little bit confronting to me um, and a little bit challenging. As I, as I wrote it last night, I, I, I really actually was getting challenged by the own, my own words that I was putting down on the page. So I figured that's a pretty good sign. So at the very least, this sermon's for me. Um, if no one else gets anything out of it today, I'm going to get something out of it. So that's a win for me. We're going to have a cruise through Esther today. I'm, I'm assuming that pretty much everyone in the room here should know the story of Esther. If you don't, you're going to get a bit of an introduction to it. Um, let's just pray as we, as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have the word that's inspired by you, the history of uh, your presence in the world, the history of your promises, the history of your deliverances that we can refer to, the living word that you are still breathing into and that you are still speaking to us every day through. Lord, we thank you that words on a page can just jump off and, and touch lives and transform hearts. Um, and, and words on a page can speak to so many different people in so many different ways and, and still be completely relevant as they were the day that they were written thousands of years ago. Lord, this morning we ask that you would open our eyes, open our minds and open our hearts to hear what you might be wanting to say to us as we look into your word and, and we look at the incredible story of, um, of this faithful woman named Esther. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the book of Esther takes place around 480 BC, roughly. Um, most of the Jews in this time are still in exile. It's, it's a leftover remnant of the Babylonian exile. But by now, the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. And so the Persians have basically just taken over all of the lands that the Babylonians controlled. The Persians have actually expanded the empire a little bit from what Babylon had. Some of the Jews have returned back to Jerusalem at this time. Jerusalem is, is still under, um, you know, the Persian control, but the Jews in Jerusalem are given pretty much a bit of freedom at this time, just to kind of manage their own day-to-days. There's, there's very little interference from the Persian Empire. But the majority of Jews are still in exile. They're scattered all throughout the Persian Empire. And um, this story takes place in Susa. Um, the story of Esther takes place in Susa, and Susa was one of the capitals um, of the Persian Empire, and this is where the king resided. Um, I'm going to have to read how to pronounce his name. King Azaruiris um, is more commonly known as King Xerxes I. Um, there is actually some debate about whether Xerxes and Azaruiris are the same person. Um, different historians throughout time have different differing views on that. And there's also some debate as to whether it's Xerxes I, second, or third. Um, the majority seem to think it's Xerxes I. But Xerxes I was also known as Xerxes the Great, and he was the son of Darius the Great, um, King Darius, um, which was Daniel. Is that Darius? Yeah. So this is, this is Darius's son. Um, and so Esther, of course, is the story of how the Jewish girl became queen. Um, in, in the land and then was able to save her people from annihilation. Interestingly, I, I didn't know this fact about Esther. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God or the name of God at all. Only book in the Bible. Read it. It does not mention God once in the entire, in the entire book, all 10 chapters. So 
when they were meeting to put together the canon of the Bible, they really must have felt that this was so significant that even though it did not mention God once, it had to be included in canon. So the story of Esther um, has something really significant to say to us. So that's one of the reasons like, um, I've, I've always thought Esther was really significant and it's a really, really great biblical story and so I've always wanted to preach on it. But then when I read this fact, I'm like, oh, now I really want to like, get into it and find out why, what's so important about Esther. So we're going to start doing some reading in chapter 1 and we're going to start at verse 3. It will be up on the screen for you if you want to follow along, but you can follow along on your phones or your Bibles as well. In the third year of his reign, this is Xerxes, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited the military officers of Persia and Media as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. That's a nice party, isn't it? It was a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. So he's had this big celebration for all of the bigwigs for 180 days. And then he thought, you know what? We're not done yet. Now everyone gets invited and we're going to have a party. Big, big feast for seven days. It lasted for seven days and it was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Drinks were served in goblets of many designs and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. See, Xerxes was an extremely, extremely wealthy king. He was actually one of the wealthiest kings of that entire sort of period in history. And his empire was just abundant in wealth. And he wanted to show this off. One of the, it mentions in there royal wine. So royal wine is like the Penfold Grange of wines. The king only drank the best. The absolute peak of, of, of wine production went to the king, and it was the royal wine. And it was reserved only for the royal wine. The only other person who would be allowed to drink the royal wine is the taster of the wine that would have to take, taste it before the king tried it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. The only other person who would be allowed to drink the royal wine is that person. So this gesture of the king of going, do you know what? Everyone can have Penfold Grange today. That shows how generous he was as a king. That was actually a really, really big gesture of going, look how great I am, look how wonderful I am, and look how generous I am to you mere mortals that I'm going to share this with you. It was such a huge gesture and really significant. The other thing that Xerxes was also really, really concerned about was beauty. Um, He considered beauty to basically be the only attribute in a woman that was worthwhile. Um, And he surrounded himself with beautiful women. All of the women in his harem were just the most beautiful women in the land. His wife um, was um, was known for her beauty. I also want to add a disclaimer here that I fully recognise and appreciate that the portrayal of women in the book of Esther is not great. Um, The the treatment and the characterisation of women in this book is really less than desirable. Um, That's a whole other sermon on its own. Um, which I'm not really going to go into today, but I do want to acknowledge that me as a male preaching about some of this stuff, um, I just want to note that, you know, I acknowledge it um, and let's move on. Um, (laughs) 
All right, so let's keep reading from verse 9. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So while Xerxes is having his seven-day banquet with the highs down to the lows, that was all the men, Queen Vashti decided to do the same thing for all the women. So she gives her own banquet. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, we don't need to worry about the names, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors, who, uh, who knew all of the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked for their advice. Jump down to 15. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Memucan answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever be banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought that this made good sense. So he followed Memucan's counsel, sent the letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. So that's what they did. All of these, this, this rebellious woman. Let's not forget, she's the queen. She's the queen. This rebellious woman who dared to defy the king. And of course then every other woman in the land was going to take her lead and then they were all going to become rebellious and they were going to defy their husbands. Obviously that can't stand. Like we we can't have women thinking for themselves um, and and not obeying every command that's given to them by their husband. So, So they present this idea to the king and he goes, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Where's the pen? Let me sign that straight away. Don't forget, they've been partying for 180 days And then they'd been drinking for seven days straight at the end of this 180-day party. So clearly this is a fabulous time to make really important decisions and make really broad-sweeping, like, declarations and proclamations as the king. The people he's taking the advice from are just as off their face as he is. They've been partying for the same amount of time. They've been drinking wine that they're not used to drinking which is a lot more potent than the stuff that they're normally drinking, they are absolutely gone. And so, of course, when you issue a drunk edict, the next morning you have drunk edict regret. So when Xerxes had sobered up a little bit and the, and the anger had kind of dissipated a little bit at his, at, his, at his queen, he started to think, you know, maybe it wasn't such a great idea to ditch the queen. And he started to get a little bit lonely. But see, he was in a, he was in a spot now. He was in, a, he was in a problem. 
Because according to the laws of the land, when the king issues a, a, an edict or a decree or a proclamation, when that proclamation is sealed, so the king wore a signet ring and it bore his, his, his logo, his, his symbol, and whenever he would make an official proclamation or thing in writing, they would seal it with, a, with wax on there. Or, or he would take his ring off and he would give it to the royal you know, secretary um, who, who would be actually writing and, and they would seal it. According to the laws of the land, any proclamation that was sealed with the king's seal cannot be undone, even by the king himself. He can't take it back. So he's signed into effect the banishment of his queen. She is stripped of all of her titles, all of her lands, all of her wealth, everything, and she's thrown into the prison in the harem. So, so she doesn't even get to go back to family or anything like that. She spends the rest of her life in prison in the harem where all of his concubines are kept. She's stripped of everything. And that can never be undone. Can't be reversed. Not even if he wants to. He can't issue another edict reneging on the previous one. It's set in stone. It's, it's gospel, effectively. So now he's a little bit bummed out. Like he doesn't have a queen. And he's made this big mistake and he can't undo it. You know, it's like once you send that drunk text at two o'clock in the morning, you can't pull it back. The words are out there. They've been sent. That's effectively what he did. This is like one of the first ever drunk texts. So he starts kind of wallowing around the place, you know, like food loses its flavor. The sounds of the birds isn't quite as sweet. You know, sunsets aren't as vivid as they used to. Flowers don't smell the same. He's in this real funk. He's just low. And so this, of course, begins to worry all of his advisors because they're like, oh, no, the king's really down. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to us? Like when he figures out that we gave him this advice and told him to do this, is it like, is he going to get angry at us? And, you know, so they think, what can we do? And do you know what they did? They created Tinder. It's totally what they did. You may think that Tinder's not that old, but it's not. It started here, 480 BC. This is where Tinder launches. You can read it in chapter 2. So his personal attendants suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful women to the royal harem and the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman that, the young woman that most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so we put the plan into effect. There you have it, Tinder. Let's round up all of the young, beautiful women in the world, bring them before the king, give them the beauty treatment. So it goes on to explain later in the chapter what the beauty treatment is. The beauty treatment is a 12-month regime. Six months, they get, um, they get really special oils, like bathed in oils and things like that to, to beautify and, and replenish the skin. And then another six months after that, they have other types of powders and all sorts of beauty rubdowns given to them. Twelve months they spend getting absolutely beautified. And then at the end of the 12 months, they, they get their pick of the garments, the jewels, everything that's, that's in the royal harem. The young woman gets to choose whatever she wants to wear and then she's presented to the king. He spends a night with them and then decides, not really happy, swipe left. Back you go. And then he meets Esther, swipe right. And then, booyah, we've got a new queen. That's what they did. I mean, of course the king's going to think this is a really great idea. 
when Esther came to King Xerxes, he didn't know that she was Jewish. Her, um, so Esther was adopted at a very young age by her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai was one of the guards at the, um, the palace gate and he, he adopted her. He had also his, um, kept his, his nationality a secret and he advised Esther to do the same thing because whilst Jews weren't necessarily hated, they weren't loved and they still did receive quite a lot of persecution in the Persian Empire. The Jews still numbered quite strongly, you know, and so there was always this threat that if the Jewish nation was to coordinate and, you know, get their, get their stuff together, they could actually be quite a formidable force against an occupying um, power. And I guess this is why throughout time people have always tried to wipe out the Jewish nation when they were occupying because if the Jews ever assembled and, and, and got their stuff together, they could be quite a dominant force and it would be really, really difficult for an occupying force to actually take over their lands. Unfortunately, the Jewish people never really figured that out. Um, Otherwise, history probably would have been very, very different. But so Mordecai advises, um, Mordecai advises Esther to keep her, her nationality a secret um, just because it might influence the king's view of her and she might not then, you know, have the opportunities that, that um, she, she later on gets presented with. We also see um, around this time, not long after the queen um, and the king got married, Mordecai, when he's at the gate, he hears of a plot um, to assassinate the king. And so he shares this with Esther and said, you know, this is the information I've got. These are the people who are planning it. Uh, And then Esther goes to the king and and shares that with the king. And so the two are arrested. Esther makes sure that the king knows that it was Mordecai who, who discovered this plot. At that time, you know, he gets a bit of a slap on the back and, you know, thanks, bro. Thanks for saving my life. But nothing, no real recognition takes place. And then we get introduced to our bad guy of the story, Haman. Haman is one of the nobles and the officials um, in Xerxes' court. And Haman's one of these guys who loves power, absolutely loves power, loves position, loves rank, loves people to know that he's important. And I don't know how he manages to get there, but Xerxes appoints him to a really, really high position. Um, And so... Haman is placed in charge of all of the nobles, all of the officials in Xerxes, um, like Xerxes' kingdom. So he's kind of like, I don't know, head government guy, you know. And so Haman then expects everyone to recognise that authority, you know, bow to me because I'm important, I'm above you. And they would. All of the court officials and all of the nobles, they would bow the knee to Haman as he walked past because that's what he expected, except Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't do it. He refused. Even when he was commanded to bow the knee, he refused. You see, Mordecai was holding on to... It's it's not explicitly said, but Mordecai was holding on to his Jewish heritage and, and the teachings that he received of a child where God says, you will bend the knee to no man. You will only bend the knee to the Lord your God. So Mordecai refused. And of course... Someone like Haman, who was just so needing to be bowed to by everyone he walked past, he didn't take too well to that. He didn't like the idea that this one guard at the palace gate was standing up to him and refusing. I mean, heck, the queen 
refused to come into the presence of the king when he summoned her, and she got cast aside, thrown into jail. So Haman starts thinking, man, what can I do to this guy? He's, he's refusing to, to do what I need to do. So, but to punish Mordecai wasn't enough for Haman, so he's like, nah, we're going to go further than that. Because Haman had found out that Mordecai was Jewish. So Haman then launches a plot to have all of the Jewish people wiped out. They're, they're, they're just trouble. So he goes to the king and he spins this story about how there's this faction of people throughout Xerxes' kingdom that are, they're going to be trouble. They're not, they're not following the laws of Persia. They're not respecting the authority of the king. They're going to be trouble, man. I can see it. If they get their stuff together, we're in trouble. They're not giving you the due respect that you deserve as a king. And so Xerxes goes, wow, I never knew about this. What's going on? Tell me more. Tell me more. What should I do? And so Mordecai goes, well, I've been thinking. Been thinking. Sorry, Haman. You're right. Thanks, Kerry. Haman's like, I've been thinking, and this is what I think we should do. He goes, I think you should write an edict that on a particular date that all of the Jewish people are to be wiped out. The words in the, um, the, words in the verse actually say, that all the Jewish people must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated. And it was March the 7th in the following year. That was the date. So Haman and his um, officials had like cast lots to kind of determine what what the date was going to be. Because he said, that's the only way, that's the only way, king, that you can guarantee the preservation of your marvelousness and your wealth and your rule. It's the only way that you can command the respect that is due the king of this land, such a wonderful, great king like you. Blows lots of smoke around, you know. Made the king feel really good about himself. And he goes, yeah, that's a great idea, Haman. You go do that. So he takes off his ring, gives it to Haman and says, write up the the edict. So it gets sent out to all the the provinces in the land in all the the various languages and the scripts, everything. So there's no mistaking what's going to happen. March 7th next year is it. It's it's go time. All the Jews are going to be wiped out. So Mordecai obviously finds out about this and he makes Esther aware of of the plot. And so this is the point where we're just going to pause and start to look at Advent. And so as Kylie said, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It's also a translation from a Greek word, periosia, which is used several times throughout the New Testament. Periosia is used, um, again, to, to indicate coming or arrival, but most notably throughout the second, um, the, the New Testament, it's, it's used to describe the future second coming of Christ. That's the sort of context where um, that word comes from. And so Advent, it, it's kind of a pretty cool thing because it takes place in three separate states simultaneously. So Advent looks back. It looks back to the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus. It looks now at the coming of Christ in our hearts. And it looks forward to the coming of Christ again in his return. So it exists. It's, it's like a triune statement. Huh, look at that. Um, it exists in these three states. But um, 
when we look at it like this, though, Advent's a really passive thing. Like it's looking, it's waiting, it's anticipating, but it's not moving. It's just something that we, we look at, that's something that we, we don't really engage with because, I mean, heck, they didn't know when Christ was coming. We don't know when he's coming back. There's a, there was an old, um, there's an old church saying that used to say, what was it? Um, live as though Christ is coming back tomorrow, but plan as though he's not coming back for a thousand years. You know, it's that thing of it shouldn't be passive, too often we sit and we sit in the space of we're going to plan that Christ isn't coming back for a thousand years, but we don't live like he's coming back tomorrow. We don't live with that urgency. We just go, oh, that's way away. You know, it's like what we kind of did 30 or 40 years ago with climate change and global warming. Like, oh, that's thousands of years away before we need to worry about that. That's generations away. We don't need to worry about that right now, but we're kind of learning now. Well, actually, yeah, we kind of did need to worry about that back then. It's that sort of thing. It's that passivity. We'll leave that for somebody else. The people of that time in the, in the, first, um, the first centuries there, or before, beast, before Christ, they were waiting for this time. You know, there'd, there'd been all of these prophecies for so long about the coming Messiah, the coming kingdom of God. They were waiting, 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 always waiting. We're in this space now where, where we're waiting. We're anticipating. We're waiting for the second coming. Um, so traditionally, Advent talks is, is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Um, and it's really quite interesting that originally Advent didn't have anything to do with Christmas. It wasn't a Christmas thing at all. Scholars originally um, believe that in, it sort of started in the 4th and 5th centuries. And Advent was actually a season of preparation for the baptism of new Christians that coincided with a Feast of Epiphany, which took place in January. And so the season of Advent lasted for 40 days. And it was 40 days where the Christians would spend in penance, prayer and fasting preparing for the season of baptism at the Feast of Epiphany. The Feast of Epiphany would end the 40-day fast. It wasn't until the 6th century that Roman Christians tied Advent to the coming of Christ, but they were using the Greek word from the New Testament, looking forward to the second coming of Christ. In the 6th century, the Advent took on that anticipation of what's still coming. It wasn't actually until the Middle Ages that Advent was linked with Christmas. And since the Middle Ages, that's when we've linked Advent with Christmas and we've looked back to the birth of Jesus and, and the coming of the King at that time. So we've managed to, I guess, change the view of Advent over time. So let's get back to Esther. So we're going to jump into chapter 4 and we're going to sort of pick up the story about where we're at with um, Esther um, Esther communicating with Mordecai around what, what we're going to do, how we're going to solve this problem. Then Esther told Hathach to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die 
unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come for him for 30 days. So Hattach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. See, Esther's first reaction here when she hears the message from Mordecai. So Mordecai wasn't able to come into the palace because when he heard of the news of what had happened, he tore off his clothes and he donned burlap and ashes, which was a traditional mourning outfit. And anyone who was wearing mourning clothes, as in grief mourning, not sunrise mourning, anyone who was wearing clothes of mourning was not permitted to enter the palace grounds. So because Mordecai was wearing this, he was so grieved at the news that him and his entire nation of people were going to be wiped out in less than a year. He went into a state of mourning, so he wasn't allowed to come in. So Esther had to send one of her um, messengers to go and communicate backwards and forwards, and that was Hadach. So, But Esther's response upon hearing that in less than a year, all the Jewish people in the world are going to be wiped out, her response was like, well, I can't go to the king because he hasn't summoned me. Like that's, it, it was a really passive waiting response. I'm just going to wait for him to invite me and then I'll casually slip it into the conversation. Oh, hey, you know, if you wouldn't mind. Like you can't, you can't just walk into the throne room of the king and say, hey, what's up? You can't do that. You die. You get put to death if you do that, unless the king holds out his golden scepter and says, no, it's okay, you can speak, which very rarely would happen. If the king does not summon you, you don't get to go into his presence. She's the queen. And she still doesn't get to go in and say hello to her husband or I've got something really important I want to talk to you about. No one enters his presence. So we read on in verse 13 where we look at Mordecai's response. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't you think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed? Remember, the king still doesn't know that she's Jewish right now. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will rise up from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen just for a time as this. This is really fascinating and something that I've I've read this story quite a number of times. I've never picked up on the line in verse 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Deliverance will rise up from some other place. You see, Mordecai knows that God's not going to abandon his people. Mordecai knows that God's not going to allow his chosen people to be wiped off the face of the planet. Mordecai knows that if Esther doesn't step up, that if she stays quiet, if she keeps hesitating, Mordecai knows that if she's not bold and steps out in faith, God's going to find someone else. He will find another way. But she and her family will perish. In Luke 19, when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's in that triumphant entrance, Luke 19 says in verse 37, when he came near the place where the roads go down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees said to, in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
when God's moving and God's doing things and God gives you a job to do, if you don't do it, he will find another way. But you will miss out on the blessing that comes. Even the stones will cry out if we don't proclaim the name of God. How cool would it be to actually see stones crying out praises to God? But the sadness of that means if they are, that means someone else didn't. Someone was placed in a moment just like that and they chose not to act. It's the same for Esther. If she misses the moment, if she stays passive, she loses. But God is still going to honour the promise that he made to his people. The Bible is full of stories from beginning to end. It's full of stories about weak people looking for hope in the midst of overwhelmingly powerful occupying forces. See, the people of God, they're always caught between honouring God and assimilating into who's ruling them in the day. And they go backwards and forwards. They get delivered and they're like, yes, praise Jesus. Not got Jesus, he wasn't around then, but praise God. He's so wonderful, we're never going to forget this, we're never going to stray from your path again. Five years later, let's make a golden cow and worship that. God goes, bang, brings him back in. Praise God, he's so wonderful, he's delivered us again. Five years later, you need to bow to this king. Okay. Backwards and forwards the whole way. And throughout those stories, you see a few, like Mordecai, who go, no, I can live in your world and I can follow God's laws. I can stay true to my faith. I can stay true to what God has commanded me to do. And I am not going to make a golden cow. I am not going to bow the knee. Not to the king, definitely not to Haman. You know, if there was anyone to bend the knee to, it would be the king, not Haman. But I'm not even going to do it to the king, even if that means I lose my life. The Bible is back to back, end to end, that cycle of story. People are always given a choice. They're always given that moment. And this was Esther's. This was Esther's moment. She'd she'd assimilated into the Persian ways. I can't go before the king. He He hasn't called me. If I walk in there and he doesn't hold out his... You know, his, his golden staff to me, I'm, I'm, I'm dead. I'm worse than Vashti. At least Vashti's still alive, but I will die. Mordecai calls her out on that. He's remained faithful his whole life to, to God's commandments and God's laws, and he calls her out. You know, he, th- he throws the ball back to Esther when he says, perhaps you were made queen for just a time as this. You know, you've got to think what's been going through Esther's mind the whole time. Like, she's just, 
this lowly Jewish girl, she's not from a family of recognition. She's not from wealth. She's not from the nobility. She was just beautiful. That was the only thing that had her brought before the king was her beauty. Obviously, there was so much more to her than that. But that's what got her in the door. And she's got to be sitting there thinking, man, what did I do to deserve this? Like, I'm the queen. I get to live in a palace. I get people waiting on me. I get to throw parties and stuff whenever I want. I'm the queen of Persia. Little old me. But then all of a sudden, there's a moment There's a moment where she can save everyone. And Mordecai says, don't think that you're going to escape this. If all the Jewish people are wiped out, that includes you. The king will find out. You're going to be included in this. So she thinks about it for a while. And then she sends her response to Mordecai. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If I must die, I must die. Esther was prepared to lay down her life to save her people. That kind of links to something that we're all familiar with. And we know the story from there. Esther goes on, she goes in to see the king. She's like hovering, the story actually talks about her, she's kind of like pacing around in the chamber that leads into the throne room and the doors were open and she's like walking around in circles and just pacing around. And the king, the king sees her and he says, Esther, come, my queen, and holds out his golden staff. And so he says, what do you want, my queen? Tell me what it is. I'll give it to you, even if it is half my kingdom. He doesn't even know what she's about to ask him. But I'll give it to you. Whatever it is that you want, it's yours. And so she invites him to a banquet the next day. And she invites Haman to a banquet, to the banquet as well. So the king and Haman come to the banquet the next day. King's like, my queen, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask for, it's yours. And she said, I want you to come to another banquet tomorrow. And at that banquet, I'll tell you what this is all about. So Haman gets to go home that night and he's like, look at me, I'm so important. The queen had a banquet with the king and he invited me, just me and the king. I must be so important. And his wife was like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. I bow down and worship you. And he's like, oh man, I really wish though I could just figure out how to get rid of this Mordecai dude. Like he's just, he's still not playing ball. And so Haman's wife suggests, you know what, why don't you fast, like order them to build this really big spike. Because what they used to do back then is when they wanted someone made an example of, they'd impale them on a spike and like stick them up outside the gates to the castle. So she's like, make a really big one. A really, really big spike. And then tomorrow, after the feast, have Mordecai impaled on this spike. So he goes, that's a great idea. So he goes to the 
people and says, I want you to make this spike. I can't remember how big it is, but I think it was something like 23 cubits or something like that, which is like 40 or 50 feet, like massive, massive big spike. So they come, they come to the feast the next day and then the king's again, my queen, my queen, what do you want? And so she tells him, my lord, there's, there's a plot. There's a plot to kill my people. And she reveals to the king that she is Jewish. And the king says, who has done this? I'll have their head. And she went, well, it's actually this dude sitting right here. It's Haman. He's the one who convinced you to send out the edict. And, you know, he's the one responsible for the whole kit and caboodle. And the king was so angry that he stormed out of the room. And then Haman starts begging for his life of the queen. So she's like sitting or reclined on this couch type thing because they were eating. And Haman comes up and, and half sits on the couch as he's begging for his life, just as the king comes back into the room. And the king's like, and now you're going to assault my queen. In the presence of the king, he goes, right, you're going on the spike. So Haman ends up being impaled on the spike that he had set out for Mordecai. And then Mordecai has been honoured. The king now has a problem, though, because if you remember back to what we talked about with the seal and edicts, he's already issued a decree and it's been sealed with the royal seal saying that all the Jews are going to be wiped out on March 7th. He can't take that back. What's he going to do? So Mordecai comes up with a plan. And so what Mordecai does is he drafts up an edict and the king gives over his ring and they sealed it. And what the edict says is that on March the 7th, all the Jewish people are given permission to defend themselves with whatever means necessary if anyone tries to kill them or a member of their family or take any of their property or lands. They've got free reign. They can, defend, they can kill if they need to. They can defend themselves in any way. And so March the 7th comes along and that's what happens. Like 500 people within the palace alone get killed by Jewish people. And so the king goes to Esther uh, on the night of the 7th. She says, you know, is there anything else I can do for you? And she goes, yeah, extend it to tomorrow as well, just in case there's any retaliation. And he goes, done. And so on the 7th and the 8th of March, the Jewish people are allowed to do whatever they need to do to defend themselves. That's the way they got around it. And that's what talks about the deliverance of the Jewish people. But it was just for those two days... And it makes mention a couple of times in the passage that even though they killed many, the Jews killed many people, they did not plunder anything from those that they killed. They didn't take anything. They just defended themselves. So here's my point, and I'm going to land this here. You see, Advent has always been about really those two things, looking back and then looking forward. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Gav would be so proud of me, I'm using a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. See, folks, we're in a troubled and broken world. The great hope of Advent is that the king will return one day and his kingdom is going to reign forevermore. 
But until that day comes, this troubled and broken world needs to know that there even is a king. You see, we've been given a task. Each and every person here knows who the king is. John the Baptist said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He was making a path, making it known that the king was coming and that he was about to ascend to his throne. We're tasked with being John the Baptist in our world. We are tasked with saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's coming back one day, folks. It might not be for a thousand days. It might be this afternoon. But he's coming back. And we are tasked with preparing the path for that. You see, God had been preparing Esther for that one moment. Her whole life, God had been riding the path, making the way, making everything fall into place for Esther to have that one moment, that one choice. She almost missed it. She almost missed it because of fear, worry, passivity, hesitation. God still would have found a way, but she would have missed the moment. She would have missed the calling. She would have missed the blessing, and her and her family would have perished. Here at Glen Osmond, you guys are in your own little Advent period right now. I mean, yes, it's Advent, but you're also in a second Advent period while you're waiting for Swanee to arrive. It's a very, very dangerous time for this church. Because the temptation for you guys... The temptation is going to be, you know what, let's not start anything new. We don't know what, we don't know what he's going to want to do. Let's not, you know, we don't want to step on any toes. Or the other temptation is going to be, you know what, the Saviour is coming. We've been on our own for so long. We've had to do all of this stuff. But you know what, now we're going to pay someone to do it. So we're just going to sit back and let him do his thing. But let's listen to Mordecai's words. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for a time just like this. You see, we can't just look back at what's been. We can't, look, we can't just look forward in anticipation of what's to come. We have to look around We've got to look around us to see what's needed. We need to look around at the hurt, at the trouble, the brokenness that we live in. What can you do in this world? What's your moment? As an individual, as a family, as a church, as a community, what's the moment? And when your moment comes, how are you going to react? Are you going to be afraid? Are you going to hesitate? Are you going to assimilate? Or are you going to stand on the promises of God and go, sign me up, let's go. If I must die, I must die. You see, Esther 
Esther had been waiting her whole life. God had, all, God had been preparing her in the background, but Esther had been waiting her whole life for God to do something through her and act through her. And when the time came, she almost missed it. Sometimes we spend so much of our life waiting and focusing on the things that are yet to come that we don't see the thing slapping us in the face when it's right in front of us. We have to look around. Just as God had been preparing Esther her whole life for the moment, God's been preparing you for your moment. God's been preparing this church for its moment. Perhaps for us this year, Advent means not only reminding ourselves of what has come and what is to come, but perhaps what God's preparing us for in the now. Perhaps what Advent is saying to us is what's going on in this very moment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the world that we live in. We thank you that we get to be a part of your mission, of your plan. We thank you that we get to be a part of your mercy and your grace and sharing that with the world around us. Lord, we thank you for stories that we get to read like Esther. Lord, stories where we can learn that we have to focus on the moment and when it comes, we have to be bold, we have to be brave and we have to stand out in faith and do what it is that you've called to us no matter what the possible consequences may be. We thank you for your promises. Thank you for your deliverance. Lord, I just ask that you would light a fire in us, embolden us to stand and say, prepare the way of the Lord. Provide us opportunities to speak the name of Jesus in our world, in our community, to our friends, to our family. Provide us opportunities to show the way. Lord, reveal the moment that we may standly, that we may boldly stand and move forward, that we don't want to be passive as we anticipate the second coming of your son. Lord, we don't want to be passive as we look back and we remember the amazing gift of Jesus in this season. Lord, we don't want to be passive as we stand and look around the world around us and just go, How can we do anything in this world? How can we help? Lord, provide us with opportunities, provide us with inspiration and provide us with the resources we need to make that impact. But most of all, Lord, provide us with the boldness to step forward and go, I'm going to do something. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.